If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the program. Today's guest is Frank Cottle. Frank is the CEO of Alliance Virtual Offices. He's also the chairman of Alliance Business Center's network. Frank launched the company sometime around the 1970s, and today the company has grown to over 700 locations in 52 countries or more. Frank didn't initially start his life out as an entrepreneur or businessman. He actually started his professional life as a racing yachtsman, but after spending so much time with uh, many rich and wealthy people, he he got the motivation and the mindset of how to become an entrepreneur. And since then, he's applied everything he's learned in his 10 years of experience as a professional yachtsman building businesses across the globe. He and his partners have developed business center operations. They've been in commercial property and also his um full-time business, which is um, Alliance Virtual Offices. Uh, he has a career that spanned almost 30 years delivering business services to the needs of startups, entrepreneurs, and growing small and medium-scale enterprises. I'm pleased to have him on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself, his background, his global management perspective, and of course, how to build a long-lasting business. So with that said, Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. I'm very, very happy to be here. Great. So, so Frank, I gave the audience a little bit of background about you, but Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started on your entrepreneurial journey. Well, I, I, I think I was very lucky. Um, I grew up in a, uh, an entrepreneurial family. Uh, my father was a serial entrepreneur that built uh, several successful companies in the uh, food uh, distribution and uh, development business. Uh, I, we come from an old ranching and farming family, so naturally that was a, a natural business for my father to go into. Um so growing up uh, as a kid, uh, when you hear everything around the table, uh, the dinner table at night, uh, good, bad, and ugly, it kind of gets in your blood. Mm. Uh, so I never, uh, honestly, I've never had a job uh, working for anyone but myself uh, since I was uh, 19. Yeah, so um, where were we? You were talking about um, well, sitting well, at the dinner table always yeah, hearing yeah. stories of entrepreneurship. So since 19, you were... Uh, yeah, off to work myself. I, yeah, I start. I started my first company at 19, and um, that was a, a commercial diving company. Um, we maintained the uh, a variety of ships in uh, San Diego, uh, uh, both uh, sport fishing fleet and commercial fishing, and and then some uh, naval vessels. Uh, and uh, I worked my way through college uh, doing that. Uh, and then, uh, started, uh, into the yachting business. Um, I had the, the luck, the, the luxury of, of sailing a lot all over the world with a variety of people, but also, uh, we built uh, myself and five other fellows with a patron behind us built what was at that time, the largest yacht brokerage in the world, uh, in the seventies, um, in 79, 78, I guess it was. I, I was in the brokerage and I was listening to one of the other fellows uh, talking to a client and he was making kind of a whiny presentation, uh, honestly. Uh, it wasn't really impressive. Uh, and I, th I thought to myself, you know, I'll never be an owner so long as I'm a broker. Yeah. And at that moment I said, nope, got to sell, got to get out of this business and go into a different kind of business. Uh, so in 1979, I started the predecessor company to Alliance. Um, and between 80, 1980 and 1990, we developed, uh, buildings, um, with the specific purpose of establishing, putting business centers, what we call co-working centers or business centers today into those buildings, uh, and on a land banking theory, 
basically buy a large piece of land, put a building on it, hold it for 10 years and sell it. Nothing magic about that. But every every, um, uh, 110 days for 10 years, I built a new building from the ground up. Wow. So we built quite a nice portfolio. And that cost a lot of money, yeah. uh, obviously, to do because they were high-quality buildings in California, Arizona, and Texas. Uh, and so, naturally, I, the first thing I needed to do in establishing that company was determine how I was going to raise the capital uh, to uh, to do so. Yeah. Uh, and that took me on a path of uh, finding partners. Uh, and I, I was lucky enough to find a very good partner, uh, capability-wise. Uh, who brought in institutional money along with him. Uh, and the good news was that he had more money than I could ever count. Um, the bad news was he wasn't a really nice guy. Mm. Uh, so I think the first lesson that I learned in, in my entrepreneurial venture was really choose your partners with care. Just because they have money or just because they can get you to your next stage doesn't necessarily mean they're a good partner. Uh, so I should have chosen my partners with more care, I think, because it cost me a lot of uh, frustration and anger through that 10-year period. Didn't cost me any money okay. because we, we were successful. Yeah. Uh, and and the, partnership, the partner was honest, but very difficult person. So um, I lost a lot of the joy that one should have had on the entrepreneurial path that I had started, even though we had quite a successful company. So um, that's so that's very surprising that you can still have a successful business but a toxic partnership. Because people always talk about you know when they get the wrong partner, the the whole thing is toxic and that leads to the business failing. But you experienced it in the opposite manner, where you had a partner, he was solid, he brought in good money. He was honest, so things were moving well. You were making money, but you were just not clicking personally on a personal level. Well, that, that's right. It, it's funny. Uh, you know a partnership's not a lot of fun when the, the you look forward to me- meeting with your partner's attorney more than your partner. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, that, that was really one of the very first lessons that I, I, I learned uh, was cho- choose your partners wisely, really with care. Mm. Um. As as I moved on in the development of our company, we sold that portfolio of buildings and moved on, but stayed in the same industry. I was lucky enough to get together with two new partners. Okay. Uh, we were all about the same age, and we all had similar assets and aspirations. And we thought, well, we'll create a company together, and we decided to call that company Alliance. Okay. It's a good name. Good name for three partners that are allied. Yeah. Um, and. Just the opposite occurred. We, we, we kind of tripled or quadrupled the speed of development of the first 10 years. And over the next 10 years, instead of 42 buildings, uh, we did 195. Oh, wow. um, so it, uh, through both acquisitions and, and organic development. And just the opposite occurred in the partnership selection. Um, in 10 years of board meetings every quarter, doing quite a bit of a substantial amount of business, we never had to have a vote on anything. So, again, choosing your partners wisely now made the new company grew at four times the speed and with a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. So the part the partnerships were still very good close friends today. After we sold that company in two thousand, uh, um, we're still very good good friends today. And 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 even though we're not doing business together any longer, mm-hmm. we've all gone separate ways. Okay. So. so so the le- the lesson is obviously that when you have a good partnership or you have good partners, um, it, it can really work, not just to the joy of the company, but it can really help accelerate the growth of the company. Okay. So now let, let's drill deeper in there for a little bit. How does one pick the right partner? Because um, appearances can be deceiving. This could also go into, you know, how do you pick the right wife or how do you pick the right best friend? So what were some of the key telltale signals and signs that you knew you found two great partners that were kindred spirits to work with for the long haul and obviously you're picking the right partner should in your business um I, my second partners were not friends first 
we became friends. We became friends after we were partners. Oh, wow. Um, I think that uh, we knew each other in business. Um, and what what we had and we agreed to um, was very common goals and objectives. Okay. And each of us played a very specific role. And where we were lucky, uh, so that we were in, in achieving our objectives, where we were lucky is that each of the partners uniquely was able to fulfill their role with equal skill. And I, I think that's, you know, there's an old saying amongst farmers, it's better to be lucky than smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that in this case, all three of us were just lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we were able to, each of the partners was able to do their part responsibly and, uh, the partnership was able to achieve its objectives as a result. And we all got along. Um, <clears throat> so I don't think there's a magic Here's the rule of how to do that. Just like you mentioned marriage, um, there, there's no magic to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just pure effort. Um, I will say I, I've been married uh, and, and, and together with, with, with my wife since 1969. Uh, we got married in 1971. We've been together since 1969. That's a long time, yeah. 48, year, 48 years. And when I was young and in the yachting industry, um, one of my clients was a very famous uh, uh, movie producer here in, in Los Angeles. And he'd been married to his wife for almost 50 years. And in Hollywood, with big-time producers, that is like absolute rarity. Mm. And, and I asked him when I was about 25 or 24, I forget, um, what, what the secret? You know, Billy, how, did, how, how, how is this working out? How, did, how, how do you and Rose stay together so long? And he said, well, I don't know, but... I have one simple rule that I follow. And I said, yes, what is it? And he said, I treat her as if she's my most important client. Hmm. You never miss a phone call. You're never late for an appointment. You never forget a date. And you're always there when they, when they need something. Uh, and he said, that's what I do. That's, that's my one rule. Hmm. And if you have, if you have two parties, uh, that think of themselves, whether it's a marriage or a, a business partnership that think that way, this person isn't my partner. It's my most important client. And whatever that client needs, I'm going to provide. Uh, if you always think that way on everything, uh, you, you can, can have quite a successful series of relationships. So per, per, perhaps thinking of them that way instead of as a partner might be, might be some help. Oh, that's, that's very good. That's very good. That's very good. So, so back into this business that you you launched with your friends, and although they're not with you today, the business is still going and growing. So, tell us a little bit about Alliance Virtual Offices. You know, what were some of the key, would I say, indicators that suggested that this business had a future going forward? And then, how did you start um, building it up? You know putting your team together because I know you work with the distributor team across the globe and you run um, properties also across the globe. So how, how did you start putting together such a winning combination of both um, people to work with as well as, you know, um, staying up to date on the trends of the business? Well, uh, in uh, 2001, I bought the other partners out of the company. Uh, we'd sold all of our primary assets. Uh, and so we had a, a remaining company that was what we call our network company. It, w- it held our brand and, and some uh, other activities. Uh, and the, from that is what uh, I, I built uh, Alliance uh, to what it is today. And today we have uh, 12 companies scattered around the world doing a variety of things in our industry. Uh, core amongst them is our, our core network company, which runs very much like a, a franchise or a licensing company. Um, and also Alliance Virtual uh, Offices, which runs in a business model very much like Expedia. Uh, I made the decision back when we owned all the buildings and centers that I didn't like that business model anymore. I thought the future was going to change, and I wanted to change it into more of a service company technology model. Uh, And I'd had some experience buying and selling a couple of technology companies in the late 90s that – we successfully sold one to Microsoft and one to the Lufthansa Group that we sold in the, the early 2000s. And 
the um, uh, I, I said made the decision I wanted to own the customer and not the center anymore. Okay. So we rebuilt Alliance Virtual into a model that in real estate, if you were to think of uh, an analogous company, looks an awful lot like Expedia um, uh, in the travel industry. Um, <clears throat> we decided that business people are really travelers, uh, that the future of business was going to be in mobility, uh, and it was all going to be technologically driven. Look at the changes that have been made since 2001 to today. Mm-hmm. Um, according to the IDC, at the end of this year, there'll be 1.6 billion mobile workers globally. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a big shift from the days of desk-bound PCs. Um, so, uh, we were lucky in, in looking towards the future. And I think the reason we had some luck at that is, um, on a personal level, I had always believed that my, a big part of my job is to be the best student of my industry. Um, so to spend dedicated time every day, learning, pursuing knowledge, trying to understand trends, um, and not get caught up in the minutia of running a company, but to always look out ahead. And I, I think perhaps my sailing background taught me a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're always looking at the horizon to see what the weather is going to do. Uh, you're always looking at the chart to make sure that you don't hit that unseen rock. Yeah. Um, you're always planning what's going to happen two or three different angles, uh, especially if you're racing. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that was just a a natural, uh, way that I looked at things. And so being a good student, I think is maybe lesson number two after the partnership is recognize that unless you learn every day, you won't be at the, the front of the pack. Um, and if people look at you as a teacher, then it forces you to learn every day. Mm -hmm. So one of your, your goals is to, uh, establish yourself as an expert, uh, and then make sure that you are one, okay. not just, not just a consultant that, you know, blabbers on and writes stupid reports, but that you really know your stuff. Uh, and that's work, but it's, it's actually a, a, a joyful part of the work because who doesn't want to learn new things that gives them and their, their customers, uh, better services and, and advantages in everything. Um, so that, that, uh, was a big part of what we did. So Alliance virtual is, is very much, uh, like Expedia. Uh, we uh, help people, uh, uh, establish offices all over the world. Uh, we can open 10 offices in 10 countries in 10 cities in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, if you're, you're in Accra and you want an office in London, Paris, Dubai, Abu Zabi, uh, uh, Tokyo, Los Angeles, you can do all of that instantly through our system, the same way you'd buy airline tickets or hotel reservations Mm. through something like Expedia. Um, And that gives businesses uh, one of the three components that all businesses need. I mean, if you look at your entrepreneurs uh, that uh, are are part of this podcast, uh, there's three things that every, every company needs. Number one, access to capital. Number two, clients. Mm-hmm. We all want more. We all want more access to capital. We all want more clients. And number three, and this sometimes is most important, is flexibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when there's a recession? What happens when the prices go up for your core product? What happens when the very best person that you want to bring into your company lives in a, in another country and you can't get immigration permits. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things you have to have to have flexibility. So we looked at how can we save businesses money? How can we uh, help them to acquire more clients? And how can we give them primarily flexibility? Mm-hmm. And we deliver that by by combining people place and technology into a single product and delivering it in a highly flexible service agreement. So you can get an office from us by the hour, by the day, by the week, by the month, by the year, by multiple years, whatever suits your particular requirement. And as contracting and offshore hiring or international hiring, 
uh, has become a core part of the way all businesses grow. Mm-hmm. Um, the flexibility that we provide through this Alliance Virtual Offices system um, has become quite material to uh, companies of all sizes. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, government uh, in different countries uh, as clients. Uh, we have the Global Fortune 1000 uh, who uh, uses our, our system. Um, a lot of uh, legal accounting and financial services professionals use our system as well as uh, branch offices and uh, entrepreneurial companies and a lot of startups. Yeah. So it, 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 we've created a product that appeals to the entire uh, ecosystem of business uh, and that's uh, an important part of the growth. If you're going to scale a company, um, you have to appeal to a, a, as broad a, a, a marketplace as possible. And that, again, part of our, our plan, and I think it should be part of every entrepreneur's plan. Mm. So when you so the initial incarnation of this business model was um, building um, business centers, and then it's now morphed into building a space where people can be flexible, companies can be flexible, they can just use what they need and then scale up or scale down based on their personal situation. So looking at the industry as a whole, for example, um, when you look at competition, because I know this is a space where it seems um, from the outside, I'm not in the industry, so I don't know, but it seems from the outside looking in, a lot of people will say, oh, this seems like a very good business model Frank is Frank is in. Just get an office, you know, maybe lease it or maybe I have a building I'm not using and then let me try and partition it out to different businesses to rent as they will. So what were some of the challenges you faced initially, like getting this model up and running? And then when it comes to looking at you know the change in the global economic environment the rise of the gig economy how much of the change in our societal infrastructure affected the would i say the uptake or the uh, the um favorability of companies turning to this model as opposed to investing in their own assets and in their own office space well um if you look at our company's uh, history overall, uh, we started off the first 10 years as a property company. The next 10 years, we were an operating company. And from 2001 till today, we're now a technology company. Mm-hmm. And I think if you were to look at cycles in business, that you would say, hmm, where was the money during each of those decades? 70s was huge in property. A lot of big operating companies opened in the, in the, excuse me, the 70s and 80s was huge in property. And a lot of big operating companies opened in the 90s. And, you know, around 2000, technology had really come into its own. And so the fast growth companies were really technology companies. So all we did was, by being good students of our industry, mm-hmm. understand the evolutionary process of our industry and how to stay uh, active as uh, a participant, we hope, at the front of our industry. Um, so we were blessed by a lot of the factors which you were referencing, in, in, in particular the shifts towards technology, the shift towards globalization in business. I mean, every entrepreneur that you talk to, you say, hey, you've got three people in your company but I bet you've got an international supplier of some, something and you probably have an international client. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to think globally in all your business activities today, um, no matter what type of, of, of activity it is. Um, and I think that uh, by doing so, you can take advantage of uh, the gig economy, uh, as, as you referenced, or uh, the mobility uh, that we see in the in all economies, not just physical mobility of people and, and place and the way they work, but the economies themselves. At any moment in time, there's never any less money in the world. Mm. There's just different people that have it. So if you think for a moment, um, the flexibility we create and the flexibility we've created for ourselves as a company, we can always do business where that money is. So 
well, we might have a recessionary period here in the U.S., guess where there was a lot of money in the last several years? It wasn't in the U.S., and it wasn't necessarily in Europe, but it was in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, so the money just moved, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and our global footprint, and the global footprint of several of our competitors, by the way, um, allows us as an industry to always take advantage of that. Um, because uh, we we can always be where the active economy is, and just kind of hunker down where it's inactive. Hmm. Um, it in our business, you mentioned uh, you know uh, it's pretty good business, and it is uh, it can be. Um, just get some space, chop it up, sell it to short term offices. But it's really a service business. You could say the hotel business is really easy too. Just you know build a hotel and have a lot of little rooms and. And make lots of money, mm-hmm. uh, but but there but there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Uh, again, we combine people, place, buildings, and technology. So we have to understand how to put in global phone systems, how to manage uh, e-commerce systems globally, um, how to market on a global scale. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things um, are are quite challenging and and require strength and capital. Yeah. So back back to the the first partner who wasn't a lot of fun, but he sure had a lot of money. Uh-huh. <laughs> so so uh, accessing capital uh, so that you can gain clients and having the flexibility to ride through a variety of business environments that's what all companies need and and um, it, you can do anything if you have those three things. Mm. So now you've mentioned capital quite a bit here, and um, I, I just want to make sure that I'm getting this correctly because the way your business model is, you don't build or own anymore. I'm understanding it that you essentially have partners that own the properties themselves, and you probably lease them from them. Is that correct? Uh, um, somewhat. Okay. Um, in our model, uh, it, it works like a hotel network. Okay. Um, the centers are privately owned by individuals mm-hmm. um, or, or companies, um, and they belong to our network, just like people belong, uh, developers belong to uh, have a license from Marriott, or okay. the, the best model would probably be Best Western Hotels, okay. which are very very loose model. That's the way our network itself operates okay. um, in a licensing network type model. Okay. We provide a variety of back office services to our network members, but we don't own the facilities. Okay. We want we wanted access to the facilities though, yeah. so so we could place our clients. And just like Expedia has a network of inventory, yeah. if you will, yeah. Hilton Hotels and Marriott and you know um, all the different hotel companies in the world. Um, all the different airlines, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, we have that same sort of inventory relationship on a wholesale basis mm-hmm. with our uh, core technology company, which is Alliance Virtual. Okay. Um, so it's a two-tiered or multi-tiered structure you have to create. Uh, in order to sell something, you have to have it. So you need to get create a structure that establishes inventory. Okay. Once you've established inventory, then you have to create the technology and the systems and the marketing structures to sell the product on yeah. a wholesale basis. Mm-hmm. And where people like our system, um, just like uh, large corporations like uh, a company like Expedia, is they can come to us and say, well, we need to open offices in 10 countries and um, they want one bill yeah, uh, in one currency with one contract mm-hmm. uh, to do that. And that's the core client that comes to us all the time. Mm. Um, okay. So I guess my next question will be, what are some of the challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? You're in 50 plus countries. So I'm sure going into a new country would have totally different challenges to overcome and totally different laws to understand. That's why a company is coming to you to give them one bill, but they want to enter 10 countries. They don't want to go through the hassle. So what were some of the challenges? What are some of the biggest challenges you faced then? How did you put together a plan or a strategy to overcome and surmount those problems? Well, I think that um, 
our challenges were no different than any other companies that was that that uh, of any size really and it's it's people um it comes down to building a team uh and you know I, i'm a great believer that um we're not necessarily the smartest people in the world um in our company uh but we're we we do have some philosophies of effort that that, that cause us to be able to focus and uh, we we strongly believe that when you cross a border, you need a partner. Yep. Uh, and that partner can be a team member that that that's local um, to that environment. Um, but some companies, uh, one of our competitors is famous for this. They'll they'll open business uh, centers and do things, et cetera, and they will bring in a team from the corporate headquarters to do it. Mm. And and our view is very much like that's the opposite of what should happen. Yeah. You should find the very, very best local people because you're going to deal in that culture. You're going to deal in that environment. And nobody from an, another place is going to intuitively understand how to do business there. Yeah. Now you, so the key is if you do have a local partner is, is having the capacity through your, your company structure to still maintain your own corporate culture uh, and to uh, be able to have a good method for transferring knowledge so that local operator has the, the, the knowledge of, of the culture, but, but you can transfer the knowledge of the business. Um, so a lot of training, uh, a, a lot of um, technology. Um, we couldn't run our company the way we do remotely without technology. Um, We've been totally paperless as a company since 1993. Wow. So we, we really looked at technology uh, early in the 80s and said, no, we're going to build uh, our company utilizing the latest tools. Um, why hire good people and give them bad tools? Mm-hmm. You know, so we've always stayed at the front edge of utilizing technology to run our business uh, and to support our clients as well. Um so, you know, it, it's just a matter of finding the right people. I think that's always the biggest challenge uh, in, in, in everything in the world. I mean, look at countries choosing their political leaders. What a difference that makes to the success or failure of the country. Yeah. So choosing people, making those partnership decisions yeah. or building your team is is the biggest challenge, I think, that we all face. Mm. And your your team, I know we've talked about this a little bit earlier, but your team is distributed across the globe. Um, I think I remember somewhere that your CMO lives in Vegas, I believe. Uh, no, our, our CFO, CFO our, our okay. chief financial officer, uh, is in Vegas, okay. where we ha- we also have a call center and 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 some other things. We we keep a what we call a test kitchen okay. uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, Vegas is a a uh, good marketplace because it's um, uh, a community, a, a city in the Vegas Valley uh, of about 2 million people. Uh, but it has an economy the size of a city that has almost 7 million people. So uh, it makes it a very good place to test out new products. Um, and there's also, uh, uh, you know, Vegas is a 24-7 city. So yeah. it's very, very easy to hire uh, quality people for things like call centers and data centers and things of that nature. Um, um, So yeah, Chris lives in uh, uh, Vegas. Uh, Our chief marketing officer is in Lexington, Kentucky. Kentucky, that's right. Uh, And um, uh, our chief operating officer is in Monterey, Mexico. Okay. Uh, And I think it's, you always try to find the very best people you can. But, Think about it for a second. How many companies hire someone from anywhere and then say, oh, you have to move your family to the headquarters? Yeah. How silly is that? You know, the first thing you're going to do is give somebody a good job and then you're going to disrupt everything in their family. Uh. Their, their, their wife is going to be upset. The kids are going to have to change schools. What kind of stress is that going to take? What expense does it create? Uh-huh. So we, a long time ago, um, made the decision that we would leave people in place wherever they were and utilize technology and our processes to allow us to find the best people, but not to disrupt their lives 
uh, and to re- be respectful of their families uh, and lo- the lifestyle that they wanted. Um, also, corporate headquarters like ours in Newport Beach are usually in very expensive areas. Yeah. Uh, so while you might bring somebody in and give them a good job and a good salary in an area they live, um, uh, the uh, lifestyle that they have is very good, and they have to actually sacrifice that in their career path to move to a more expensive market. Uh, and that's both costly to the company and the individual. Again, it's, it's not a good decision-making thing. Yeah. We, don't have to, we don't have to sit at have offices next door to each other to work anymore. Mm. You know, and we have partners and in, in, in teams in, in London and in Amsterdam and in Dubai and Sydney and all over the world. Um, uh, in fact, next week I'll be in Beijing uh, looking at some options. Um, and it, it's just a constant process of leave the best, get the best people, but leave them where they are. So my, my next question is probably going to be this. How do you um, create the culture since you're the leader and everyone is distributed? You know, how, do you, how do you know that you're hiring the right guys and they'll fit into your culture? And then how do you empower, empower your team to be good at what they do what type what, what's your leadership style and how do you create a winning culture for, for your team um, um I, I i think as a style it, it's very simple and very transparent um uh i don't i don't know that there's an actual style uh, <laughs> but we, we but but we do have some philosophies that that we established Okay, maybe, decades that's, ago. maybe De- that's, a decades. Bet, that, that's a better way to put it. Decades, decades ago, and, and, and they're very simple. And, and the first one uh, uh, is that um, when I was in the yachting business, I had a, uh, a client. I had two clients, and they were both in the uh, snack business. They basically made, made potato chips. And one of them is, they're both quite large, but one of them was five times bigger than the other. And they both had been in the business, uh, second generation of families. And uh, I asked the larger of them, you know, why do you think you're better or bigger than your com- your other competitor? I won't name their names. Uh, and, and he said, well, I don't know, but um, we have built our entire company around the structure of a company and its service to sales. And I thought, well, what do you mean? Is that a... A, a, like you're going from service to sales or what does it really mean? He said, no, we built the company to service our sales department. So everything we do, every decision we make uh, about what technology we put in, who we hire, everything is around how do we support and give our sales department every tool they can to be successful. So, for his company, that was a good structure. So I think all companies have to have a core philosophy on the structure of the company around which to build their culture. You, you, you can't have a beautiful building unless you have a really good architect. And you, an architect is no good unless they have a really good engineer to make yeah. sure the building doesn't fall down. Yeah. Uh, so, so you have to go back to, to that level and, and, and think like that. So service to sales was, was his philosophy. In our philosophy, while we practice that structurally, that same same approach structurally, um, our philosophy is members first. And by members, we mean our customers uh, and our, our operators in our network. Uh, and so when we sit down at a board meeting or an executive team meeting or any executive makes a decision on anything, they are challenged to ask themselves, first and foremost, is this good for the member? Is this good for our client and the member? And all of our decision-making should be based on members first. Mm. Uh, we can't think of, well, if we do this, we'll make a little more profit. Or if we do that, we'll, we'll be able to restructure and do something. No, you know what? It all comes down. We're in the service business. If we don't think of the member first, we are self-defeating in, in whatever decision we've made. Uh, so that's one issue. The, the other issue internally that's a simple philosophy for us um, uh, is family first. So we look at, uh, our teammates as a family and we look at them individually 
and their families. And we say to ourselves, and this is why we hire in place a lot, um, well, if someone has a problem, what can we do to help them? Uh, if someone has a, a challenge or if there's, there's, you know, just any kind of issue going on, mm-hmm. do they need extra time off? Do, how do we cover somebody if, if maybe there's a death in the family or maybe there's a marriage mm-hmm. or maybe there's a new, a new child? Uh, how, do, how do we all come together in celebration or in support of those things and be there as a larger family to support the individual families? So members first, families first, service to sales. Those are our structure and then our two philosophies around which we operate. And those things have created our culture, not me. Great. Wow, that's that's really been a lot of lessons in this short few minutes. So as we start to round up, Frank, I have a couple wrapping up questions for you, and then I'll let you go. So... um. Could you tell me what's a significant personal failure you've experienced in the past and how did you recover from it? Um, say that again. I'm not quite sure I understood. Uh, could you talk about a significant personal failure you've experienced and how you overcame it or recovered from it? Oh, I, th- I think that um, kind of go two directions, I guess. First, I think the partnership decision I made was a failure and recovering from it was um, difficult because uh, I felt very frustrated and very, very slowed down and angry. Mm-hmm. And I recognized, hey, you know, the best way to, to solve this problem is just to sell, mm. get rid of it. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's what we did. We got rid of the portfolio and getting rid of the portfolio automatically got rid of the partner. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, making a decision um, when you once you recognize there's a problem, uh, you have to make a decision yeah. uh, and and act on it. You can't say, "Oh, it'll be okay." Oh, we'll we'll. I know it's not fun, but we're making money. No, it, it it's holding you back. Yeah. So make the make the decision, um, uh, and and that's a, a big a big part of our own internal philosophy in our own company. We empower everyone to make decisions. Uh, even the, 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 a single receptionist, uh, in a call center can make a whole variety of decisions. If they make the wrong decision, we'll stand behind it. But the, the, the worst thing that companies can do is not empower people to make decisions on their own. Once you do that, they stop thinking and you, you don't want people that don't think working with you at all levels, at all levels. And we say that really the best ideas we get come from our members and our employees. Our own clients and our own members give us the best ideas we ever get. We just act on them. Uh, so we're gathering information all the time. So I think the partnership issue, and that comes to decision-making, uh, was uh, probably uh, the biggest challenge uh, that, that uh, I had in, on a personal basis was coming to grips with that decision that needed to be made and then acting on it. And um, as you said earlier, you're a voracious reader. You like to learn more about your industry and learn more about your business so that you can stay on top. So what are some of the materials? What has helped you become a better entrepreneur in terms of books or audio programs or courses? Um. I, I don't read too many business books. Uh, I've read a few going back in years and I always came to the conclusion that what I was reading was two or three years old in the thought processes of today. And I am very much a current minute to minute person. So I study current events, uh, uh, political, geopolitical activities, uh, geoeconomic activities. Um, I watch our industry on a constant basis. Uh, one of the things we established, uh, we've established three things uh, that are different from most companies. In addition to our core operating companies, we also operate the industry's largest news and information publication and network. And we do this as a service to the entire industry. Mm. Um, and by doing so, obviously, we have the advantage of a lot of information coming in that we 
see and filter and then republish properly. And we have a, a, a good editors and writers in that company. And, and so we, we are the sorts of information in our own industry now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, we also, um, are a participant in another company, uh, that is the industry's largest meetings, uh, and convention platform. So we host, uh, the industry's meetings, uh, for itself, uh, and conventions, um, all over the world. Uh, this year we did a meeting in New York. We just had one in Melbourne. Uh, we've got one in Vancouver, uh, in about five weeks. And then we have one in Shenzhen, Taipei and Singapore yet this year. Uh, starting in 2018, we have a meet, global meeting in Dubai, London, Chicago, and I don't know what's after that. But about five or six meetings a year bringing the whole industry together. Thousands and thousands of business center operators from around the world attend these meetings. Yeah. So we create the content and deliver the training. And by doing so, we're always one step ahead. Uh, so I think... Current events and current activities is really what I study as opposed to someone else's idea of, you know, the best way to run a business. Uh, and, and that that would be a comment I would make to all of your entrepreneurial listenership is that really just make your own decisions. Study, think, but don't don't follow someone else's philosophy. Um, not mine, not not some the latest best-selling business book, um, those shouldn't be your inspiration. Uh, your inspiration should be your own original ideas and your own original thoughts. And those will stay with you forever. And they won't just be the flavor of the month business book. Yeah. And I think the reason why a lot of people don't do that is because they're afraid or they don't trust their own decision. So could you speak a little bit about, you know, I think you've already alluded to this earlier, but being persistent in terms of committing to what you want to do and f being able to follow through in the long term? Well, I, I, I think if, if you have a vision, um, it shouldn't necessarily waver. Uh, you adjust it a little bit, um, but uh, based on conditions, but your vision remains the same. Um, and we, our original vision, my original vision, uh, was to help change the way people worked and change the way that real estate operated from a highly rigid, I mean, just think of the term landlord. That's kind of intimidating in itself, right? Yeah. Uh, so we, we wanted to remove all of that, uh, change the way people could work, uh, provide a better working environment with a higher degree of flexibility. And that's what the decision was in 1979. And that has not wavered to today. We now speak in our considered experts on the future of work. Uh, we've laid a lot of, uh, of the uh, foundation for our industry, uh, and uh, we just want to be a good community member of that industry. We don't think we're, we're at the, we hope we're in the front end, but there are a lot of brilliant people in our industry doing fabulous things, and so we, we just want to uh, be part of that pack. Oh, great. And Frank, I think this is the last question for the day before I let you go. So for people that are just starting out or thinking of launching something entrepreneurial, kind of like what you did a few years ago, what's your biggest piece of advice you want to share with young people today? <clears throat> just do it. You know, pe people all the time, we, I'll use travel as an analogy. They say, oh, gosh. You just got back from here. Just about. I've always wanted to go there. Uh, well, just buy a ticket. Go. And that's just the same with, with entrepreneurialism. Just do it. Um, make sure you're prepared, but don't over-prepare because you don't know what's going to be. I mean, what's the future going to be? You tell me. I have no idea. No idea. Uh, no idea. So why should I worry about it too much? I, I know that today I'm prepared to deal with today. And that by setting up that flexibility structure, if you will, probably whatever happens in the future, because we have flexibility built into our business, uh, we'll be able to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, so don't don't be afraid to adjust your course. Uh, just don't change your destination. I, in, in, in yachting, in a, in a yacht race, the moment you <clears throat> pull away from the dock, 
uh, you're changing, you're, you're adjusting your course. Uh, and in a, in a race, everybody knows where the start line is and everybody knows what the finish line is. Mm-hmm. But moment to moment, the shifts in the wind, the shifts in the current, the shifts in the weather, maybe a competitor, um, moment to moment, you're adjusting. Yeah, but you know your destination. You know your destination, so you you constantly seek the most effective adjustments to to reach that destination, and that's what entrepreneurs have to do. Know your destination. Hmm. And with that said, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show, Frank. So, Frank, could you tell us where people can find you if they need to learn more about you and um, AVO? Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a two uh, um, e- uh, websites. Okay. Uh, the first one would be AllianceVirtualOffices.com. Uh-huh. And the second one is AllWork.Space. And AllWork.Space is our industry publication that really speaks about our entire industry, not just us. Yeah. Uh, and people that want to learn about our industry and want to learn more about future of work and flexibility in the workplace and who's doing what to whom, the gossip columns, the whole thing. <laughs> um, uh, you know, all work dot space is good. If people are interested in understanding how to set up a global structure or even a local structure on a very effective basis economically, uh, then Alliance Virtual Offices is the place to go. All right. And I'll link to those two links in the uh, show notes. But what about you personally, Frank? Are you active on any one of the social media networks? Um, I'm uh, active on LinkedIn okay. a bit. Uh, and uh, Facebook, honestly, for me, is for real friends. Real friends. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I... I I, I I don't have a lot of Facebook friends, but yeah. I have a lot of real friends that I'm connected to on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and so I am on Facebook and, and also uh, uh, have a limited showing on Twitter. I'm uh, We look at our own publications as our primary communication structure for oh. our company, not, oh. not social media. Hmm. That's cool. All right, and I'll link to all that. So it's been a pleasure really having you on the show for the last hour. I know I know we were supposed to go a little bit longer, but I guess the conversation was quite interesting, so that's okay too. So thanks for coming well, on to share your story. My pleasure, and anything I can ever do to help, uh, just let us know. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.